0: Eleven, and the time of Bishop Beckington Wells was in its full glory. The church, the outbuildings, the Episcopal Palace, the deanery, all combined to form a wonderful architectural triumph, a group of buildings which represented the highest achievement of English Gothic art. Since then, many things have happened. The cathedral, like all other ecclesiastical buildings, has passed through three great periods of iconoclastic violence. It was shorn of some of its glory at the Reformation. When it was plundered of the treasures which the piety of many generations had heaped together, then the beautiful lady chapel in the cloisters was pulled down, and the infamous Duke of Somerset robbed it of its wealth and meditated further sacrilege. Amongst these desecrators and despoilers there was a mighty hunger for a league. I would that they had found its scalding, exclaimed an old chaplain of Wells, and to get hold of the league that covered the roofs of valuable commodity Somerset and his kind did much mischief to many of our cathedrals and churches an infamous Bishop of York, at this period, stripped his fine palace that stood on the north of York Minster, for the sake of the league that covered it, and shipped it off to a London, where it was sold for L1000, but of this sum he was cheated by a noble duke, and therefore gained nothing by his infamy, during the civil war it escaped fairly well, but some damage was done, the palace was despoiled, and at the restoration of the monarchy much repair was needed, Monmouth's rebels wrought havoc. They came to a wells in no amiable mood, to face the statues on the west front, did much wanton mischief, and would have caroused about the altar had not Lord Grey stood before it with his sword drawn, and thus preserved it from the insults of the ruffians. Then came the evils of restoration, a terrible renewing was begun in 1848, when the old stalls were destroyed and much damage done, twenty years later better things were accomplished. Save that the grandeur of the west front was belittled by a pipey restoration, when Irish limestone, with its harsh hue, was used to embellish it. A curiosity at Wells are the quarter jacks over the clock on the exterior north wall of the cathedral. Local tradition has it that the clock with its accompanying figures was part of the spoil removed from Glastonbury Abbey. The ecclesiastical authorities at Wells assert in contradiction to this that the clock was the work of one Peter Lightfoot and was placed in the cathedral in the latter part of the 14th century. A minute is said to exist in the archives of repairs to the clock and figures in 1418. It is Mr. Rowe's opinion that the defensive armor on the quarter jack dates from the first half of the 15th century. The plain ova form breastplates and bassinets, as well as the continuation of the tacits round the hips, being very characteristic features of this period. The halberds in the hands of the figures are evidently restorations of a later time. It may be mentioned that in 1907, when the quarter jacks were painted, it was discovered that though the figures themselves were carved out of solid blocks of oak hard as iron, the arms were of elm bolted and braced thereon. Though such instances of combined materials are common enough among antiquities of medieval times, it may yet be surmised that the jar caused by incessant striking may in time have necessitated repairs to the upper limbs. The arms are immovable, as the figures turn on pivots to strike. An illustration is given of the Palace at Wells, which is one of the finest examples of 13th century houses existing in England, it was begun by Jocelyn, the Great Hall, now in ruins, was built by Bishop Burnell at the end of the 13th century, and was destroyed by Bishop Barlow in 1552, the chapel is decorated, the gatehouse, with its drawbridge, moat, and fortifications, was constructed by Bishop Ralph, of Shrewsbury who ruled from 1329 to 1363? The deanery was built by Dean Goodthorpe in 1475, who was chaplain to Edward Ivey. On the north is the beautiful Vicar's Close, which has 42 houses, constructed mainly by Bishop Beckington 1443-64, with a common hall erected by Bishop Ralph in 1340 and a chapel by Bud with 1407-64, but altered a century later. You can see the old fireplace, the pulpit from which one of the brethren read aloud during meals, and an ancient painting representing Bishop Ralph making his grant to the kneeling figures, and some additional figures painted in the time of Queen Elizabeth. When we study the cathedrals of England and try to trace the causes which led to the destruction of so much that was beautiful, so much of English art that has vanished, we find that there were three great eras of iconoclasm. First there were the changes wrought at the time of the Reformation. When a rapacious kin and his greedy ministers set themselves to a wring from the treasures of the church as much gain and spoil as they were able, these men were guilty of the most daring acts of shameless sacrilege, the grossest robbery, with them nothing was sacred, buildings consecrated to God, holy vessels used in his service, all the works of sacred art, the offerings of countless pious benefactors were deemed as mere profane things to be seized and polluted by their sacrilegious hands. The land was full of the most beautiful gems of architectural art, the monastic churches. We can tell something of their glories from those which were happily spared and converted into cathedrals or parish churches. Ellie, Peterborough the pride of the Fenlands, Chester, Gloucester, Bristol, Westminster, St Albans, Beverly, and some others proclaim the grandeur of hundreds of other magnificent structures which have been shorn of their leaden roofs, used as quarries for building stone entirely removed and obliterated, or left as pitiable ruins which still look beautiful in their decay. Reading, Tintern, Glastonbury, Fountains, and a host of others all tell the same story of penniless iconoclasm, and what became of the contents of these churches. The contents usually went with the fabric to the spoliators. The halls of country houses were hung with altar cloths, tables and beds were quilted with copes, Knights and squires drank their claret out of chalices and watered their horses in marble coffins. From the accounts of the royal jewels it is evident that a great deal of church plate was delivered to the king for his own use, besides which the sum of L30.360 derived from plate obtained by the spoilers was given to the proper hand of the king. The iconoclasts vented their rage in the destruction of stained glass and beautiful illuminated manuscripts, priceless tomes and costly treasures of exceeding rarity. Parish churches were plundered everywhere, robbery was in the air, and clergy and church wardens sold sacred vessels and appropriated the money for parochial purposes rather than they should be seized by the king. Commissioners were sent to visit all the cathedral and parish churches and seize the superfluous ornaments for the king's use, tithes, lands, farms, buildings belonging to the church all went the same way, until the hand of the iconoclast was stayed, as there was little left to steal or to be destroyed. The next era of iconoclastic zeal was that of the Civil War and the Cromwellian period. That Rochester the soldiers profaned the cathedral by using it as a stable and a tippling place. While sawpits were made in the sacred building and carpenters plied their trade. That Chichester the pikes of the Puritans and their wild savagery reduced the interior to a ruinous desolation. The usual scenes of mad iconoclasm were enacted stained glass windows broken. Altars thrown down. Leads stripped from the roof. Brasses and effigies defaced and broken. A creature named Blue Dick was the wild leader of the savage crew of spoliators who left little but the bare walls and a mass of broken fragments strewing the pavement. We need not record similar scenes which took place almost everywhere. The last and grievous rule of iconoclasm set in with the restorers who worked their will upon the fabric of our cathedrals and churches and did so much to obliterate all the fragments of good architectural work which the Cromwellian soldiers and the spoliators at the time of the Reformation had left, the memory of Wyatt and his imitators is not revered when we see the results of their work on our ecclesiastical fabrics, and we need not wonder that so much of English art has vanished, the cathedral of Bristol suffered from other causes, The darkest spot in the history of the city is the story of the Reform riots of 1831, sometimes called, the Bristol Revolution, when the dregs of the population pillaged and plundered, burnt the Bishop's Palace, and were guilty of the most atrocious vandalism, the city of Bath. Once the rival of Wells the contention between the monks of St. Peter and the canons of St. Andrews at Wells being hot and fierce has many attractions, its minster rebuilt by Bishop Oliver King of Wells 1495-1503, and restored in the seventeenth century, and also in modern times, is not a very interesting building, though it lacks not some striking features, and certainly contains some fine tombs and monuments of the fashionable folk who flocked to Bath in the days of its splendor. The city itself abounds in interest. It is a gem of Georgian art, with a complete homogeneous architectural character of its own which makes it singular and unique. It is full of memories of the great folks who thronged its streets, attended the bath and pump room, and listened to sermons in the octagon. It tells of the autocracy of Bonash, of Goldsmith, Sheridan, David Garrick, of the first gentlemen of Europe, and many others who made Bath famous, and now it is likely that this unique little city with its memories and its charming architectural features is to be mutilated for purely commercial reasons. Everyone knows Bath Street with its colonnade loggias on each side terminated with a crescent at each end, and leading to the cross Bath in the center of the Eastern Crescent. That the original founders of Bath Street regarded it as an important architectural feature of the city is evident from the inscription in abbreviated Latin which was engraved on the first stone of the street when laid, pro vrbi's dig, Horton, PRAD, T, Baldwin, ARCHIDACDO, which may be read to the effect that, for the dignity and enlargement of the city, the delegates I. Horton, Mayor, and T. Baldwin, Architect, laid the stone AD 1791. It is actually proposed by the new proprietors of the Grand Pump Hotel to entirely destroy the beauty of the street by removing the colonnade loggia on one side of the street and constructing a new side to the hotel two or three stories higher and thus to change the whole character of the street and practically destroy it. It is a sad pity, and we should have hoped that the city council would have resisted very strongly the proposal that the proprietors of the hotel had made to their body, but we hear that the council is lukewarm in its opposition to the scheme, and has indeed officially approved it. It is astonishing what city and borough councils will do, and this bath council has the discredit of having, for purely commercial reasons, made the first move towards the destruction architecturally of the peculiar charm of their unique and beautiful city. The Builder. March 6, 1909. Beavisham is entirely a monastic town. It sprang up under the sheltering walls of the famous Abbey of pretty burg and such as Fancy loves for bygone grandeurs. This Abbey shared the fate of many others which we have mentioned the dean of Gloucester thus muses over the vanished abbey, the stranger who knows nothing of its story would surely smile if he were told that beneath the grass and daisies round him were hidden the vast foundation stories of one of the mightiest of our proud medieval abbeys, that, on the spot where he was standing were once grouped a forest of tall columns bearing up lofty fretted roofs, that all around once were altars all agleam with color and with gold, that besides the many altars were once grouped in that sacred spot chan and tombs many of them marvels of grace and beauty, placed there in the memory of men great in the service of church and state of men whose names were household words in the England of our fathers, that close to him were once stately cloisters, great monastic buildings, including refectories, dormitories, chapter house, chapels, infirmary, granaries, kitchens all the varied piles of buildings which used to make up the hive of a great monastery, it was commenced by Bishop Egwin, of Worcester. In 700 to AD but the era of its great prosperity set in after the battle of Evesham, when Simon de Montfort was slain, and his body buried in the monastic church, there was his shrine to which was great pilgrimage, crowds flocking to allay their offerings there, and riches poured into the treasury of the monks, who made great additions to their house, and reared noble buildings, little is left of its former grandeur, you can discover part of the piers of the great central tower. The cloister arch of decorated work of great beauty erected in 1317, and the Abbey fish ponds. The bell tower is one of the glories of Evesham. It was built by the last abbot, Abbot Litchfield, and was not quite completed before the destruction of the great Abbey church adjacent to it. It is a grand specimen of perpendicular architecture. At the corner of the marketplace there is a picturesque old house with gable and carved barge boards and timber framed arch, and we see the old Norman gateway named Abbot Reginald's Gateway after the name of its builder, who also erected part of the wall enclosing the monastic buildings. A timber frame structure now stretches across the arcade, but a recent restoration has exposed the Norman columns which support the arch. The church house, always an interesting building in old towns and villages, wherein church ales and semi-ecclesiastical functions took place, has been restored. Passing under the arch we see the two churches in one churchyard All Saints and St. Saint Lawrence. The former has some Norman work at the inner door of the porch, but its main construction is decorated and perpendicular. Its most interesting feature is the Lichfield Chapel, erected by the last abbot, whose initials and the arms of the abbey appear on escutcheons on the roof. The fan tracery roof is especially noticeable, and the good modern glass. The Church of St. Lawrence is entirely perpendicular, and the Chantry of Abbot Leechmeld, with its fan tracery vaulting, is a gem of English architecture. Amongst the remains of the abbey buildings may be seen the almonery, the residence of the almoner, formerly used as a jail. An interesting stone lantern of 15th century work is preserved here. Another abbey gateway is near at hand, but little evidence remains of its former Gothic work. Part of the old wall built by Abbot William de early in the 14th century remains. In the town there is a much modernized town hall, and near it the old-fashioned booth hall, a half-timbered building now used as shops and cottages, where formerly courts were held, including the Court of Pipeouter, the usual accompaniment of every fair, Bridge Street is one of the most attractive streets in the borough, with its quaint old house, and the famous inn, The Crown, the old house in Clow Street was formerly the White Hart Inn, which tells a curious Elizabethan story about, The Fool and the Ice, an incident supposed to be referred to by Shakespeare in Troilus and Cressida II, SC. 3 the fool slides or the ice that you should break, the queen and house in the high street, with its wrought iron railings and brackets, called Dresden House and Omsud, one of the oldest dwelling houses in the town, are worthy of notice by the students of domestic architecture, there is much in the neighborhood of Evesham which is worthy of note, many old fashioned villages and country towns, manor houses, churches, and inns which are refreshing to the eyes of those who have seen so much destruction, so much of the England that is vanishing, the old abbey tide barn at Littleton of the 14th century, Wickhamford Manor, the home of Penelope Washington, whose tomb is in the adjoining church, the picturesque village of Cropthorne, Winchcote and its houses, Sudley Castle, the timbered houses at Norton and Harvington, Broadway and Canton, abounding with beautiful houses, and the old town of Alcaster, of which some views are given all these contain many objects of antiquarian and artistic interest and can easily be reached from Evesham. In that old town we have seen much to interest, and the historian will delight to fight over again the Battle of Evesham and study the records of the siege of the town in the Civil War. Chapter X Old Inns The trend of popular legislation is in the direction of the diminishing of the number of licensed premises and the destruction of inns. Very soon, we may suppose, the Black Boy and the Red Lion and hosts of other old signs will have vanished. And there will be a very large number of famous inns which have retired from business. Already their number is considerable. In many towns through which in olden days the stagecoaches passate inns were almost as plentiful as blackberries. They were needed then for the numerous passengers who journeyed along the great roads in the coaches. They are not needed now when people rush past the places in express trains. The order has gone forth that these superfluous houses shall cease to be licensed premises and must submit to the removal of their signs, others have been so remodeled in order to provide modern comforts and conveniences that scarce a trace of their old-fashioned appearance can be found. Modern temperance legislators imagine that if they can only reduce the number of inns they will reduce drunkenness and make the English people a sober nation. This is not the place to discuss whether the destruction of inns tends to promote temperance, we may perhaps, be permitted to doubt the truth of the legend, oft-repeated on temperance platforms, of the working man, returning homewards from his toil, struggling past nineteen inns and succumbing to the seren charms of the twentieth, we may fear lest the gathering together of large numbers of men in a few public houses may not increase rather than diminish their thirst and the love of good fellowship which in some mysterious way is stimulated by the imbibing of many pots of beer, we may, perhaps, feel some misgiving with regard to the temperate habits of the people, if instead of well-conducted hostels, duly inspected by the police, the landlords of which are liable to prosecution for improper conduct, we see arising a host of endoverned clubs, wherein no control is exercised over the manners of the members and adequate supervision impossible, we cannot refuse to listen to the opinion of certain royal commissioners who, after much sifting of evidence, came to the conclusion that as far as the suppression of public houses had gone, their diminution had not lessened the convictions for drunkenness. But all this is beside our subject. We have only to record another feature of vanishing England, the gradual disappearance of many of its ancient and historic inns, and to describe some of the fortunate survivors, many of them are very old, and cannot long contend against the fiery eloquence of the young temperance order, the newly fledged justice of the peace or the budding member of Parliament who tries to win votes by pulling things down. We have, however, still some of these old hostelries left, medieval pilgrims redland of the memories of the not very pious companies of men and women who wended their way to visit the shrines of St. Thomas of Canterbury or Our Lady at Valsingham, historic inns wherein some of the great events in the annals of England had occurred, ins associated with old romances or frequented by notorious highwaymen that recall the adventures of Mr. Pickwick and other heroes and villains of Dickensian tales. It is well that we should try to depict some of these before they altogether vanish. There was nothing vulgar or disgraceful about an in a century ago. From Elizabethan times to the early part of the 19th century they were frequented by most of the leading spirits of each generation. Archbishop Lagan who died in 1684 often used to say to Bishop Burnett that if he were to choose a place to die in it should be an inn, it looked like a pilgrim's going home, to whom this world was all as an inn, and who was weary of the noise and confusion of it, his desire was fulfilled, he died at the old Bell Inn in Warwick Lane, London, an old galleried hostel which was not demolished until 1865, Dr. Johnson, when delighting in the comfort of the Shakespeare's head inn, between Worcester and Litchfield, exclaimed, Mumbus there is nothing which has yet been contrived by man, by which so much happiness is provided as by a good tavern or inn, the soft-quoted saying the learned doctor uttered at the chapel house in, near Kings Norton, its glory has departed, it is now a simple country house by the roadside. Shakespeare, who doubtless had many opportunities of testing the comforts of the famous inns at Southwark, makes false staff say, Shall I not take my knees at mine inn? And Shenstone wrote the well-known rhymes on a window of the old red lion at Henley-on-Thames, whoseer has traveled life's dull road. Where sir his stages may have been, may sigh to think he still has found the warmest welcome at an inn. Finn's Morrison tells of the comforts of English inns even as early as the beginning of the 17th century. In 1617 he wrote, The world affords not such inns as England hath. For as soon as a passenger comes the servants run to him, one takes his horse and walks him till he be cold. Then rubs him and gives him meat, but let the master look to this point. Another gives the traveler his private chamber and kindles his fire. The third pulls off his boots and makes them clean. Then the host or hostess visits him if he will eat with the host or at a common table. It will be 4d and 6d. If the gentleman has his own chamber, his ways are consulted, and he has music too. If he likes, the literature of England abounds in references to these ancient inns. If drive Johnson, Addison, and Goldsmith were alive now, we should find them chatting together at the author's club, or the savage, or the Athenium, there were no literary clubs in their days, and the public parlors of the Cock Tavern or the Cheshire Cheese, were their clubs, wherein they were quite as happy, if not quite so luxuriously housed, as if they had been members of a modern social institution, who has not sung in praise of inns? Longfellow, in his Hyperion, makes Fleming say, he who has not been at a tavern knows not what a paradise it island, O oh, holy tavern, O oh, miraculous tavern, holy, because no carking cares are there, nor weariness, nor pain, and miraculous, because of the skits which have themselves turned round and round, they appealed strongly to a Washington Irving, who, when recording his visit to the Shrine of Shakespeare, says, to a homeless man, who has no spot on this wide world which he can truly call his own. There is a momentary feeling of something like independence and territorial consequence. When after a weary day's travel he kicks off his boots, thrusts his feet into slippers, and stretches himself before an in fire. Let the world without go as it may, let kingdoms rise or fall. So long as he has the werewolf all to pay his bill. The island for the time being. The very monarch of all he surveys. Shall I not take my knees in mine in, Thought I as I gave the fire a stir. Lulled back in my elbow chair and cast a complacent look about the little parlour of the red horse at Stratford-on-Avon, and again, on Christmas Eve Irving tells of his joyous long day's ride in a coach, and how he at length arrived at a village where he had determined to stay the night, as he drove into the great gateway of the inn some of them were mighty narrow and required much skill on the part of the Ghu he saw on one side the light of a rousing kitchen fire beaming through a window, he entered and admired, for the hundredth time, that picture of convenience, neatness, and brought honest enjoyment the kitchen of an English inn, it was of spacious dimensions, hung round with copper and tin vessels highly polished, and decorated here and there with Christmas green, hams, tongs, and flitches of bacon were suspended from the ceiling, a smoke jack made its ceaseless clanking beside the fireplace, and a clock ticked in one corner, a well scoured deal table extended along one side of the kitchen, with a cold round of beef and other hardy vines upon it over which two foaming tankards of ale seemed mounting guard. Travelers of inferior order were preparing to attack the stout repast, while others sat smoking and gossiping over their ale on two high-backed oak and settles beside the fire. Trim housemaids were hurrying backwards and forwards under the directions of a fresh bustling landlady, but still seizing an occasional moment to exchange a flippant word, and had a rallying laugh with the group round the fire, such as the cheering picture of an old-fashioned inn in days of York. No wonder that the writers should have thus lauded these inns. Imagine yourself on the box seat of an old coach traveling somewhat slowly through the night. It is cold and wet, and your fingers are frozen, and the rain drives pitilessly in your face, and then, when you are nearly dead with misery, the coach stops at a well-known inn. A smiling ghost and buxom hostess greets you, blazing fires thaw you back to life, and good cheer awaits your appetite. No wonder people loved in in and wished to take their ease therein after the dangers and hardships of the day. Lord Beaconsfield, in his novel Tancred, vividly describes the busy scene at a country hostelry in the busy coaching days. The host, who is always smiling, conveys the pleasing intelligence to the passengers. The coach stops here half an hour. Gentlemen, dinner quite ready. Tee's a delightful sound. And what a dinner. What a profusion of substantial delicacies what mighty and iris stinted rounds of beef, what vast and marble-having ribs, what gelatinous veal-pies, what colossal hams, these are evidently prized cheeses, and how invigorating is the perfume of those various and variegated pickles, then the bustle emulating the plenty, the ringing of bells, the clash of thoroughfare, the summoning of ubiquitous waiters, and the all-pervading feeling of omnipotence from the guests, who order what they please to the landlord who can produce and execute everything they can desire, Tis a wondrous sight, and then how picturesque these old inns are, with their swinging signs, the pump and horse trough before the door, a towering elm or poplar overshadowing the inn, and round it and on each side of the entrance are seats, with rustics sitting on them, the old house has picturesque gables and a tiled roof mellowed by age, with moss and lichen growing on it, and the windows are latticed. a porch protects the door, and over it and up the walls are growing old-fashioned climbing rose trees. Moreland loved to paint the exteriors of inns quite as much as he did to frequent their interiors, and has left us many a wondrous drawing of their beauties. The interior is no less picturesque, with its opening look, its high-backed cells, its brick floor, its pots and pans, its pewter and brass utensils. Our artist has drawn for us many beautiful examples of old inns, which we shall visit presently and try to learn something of their old-world charm. He has only just been in time to sketch them, as they are fast disappearing. It is astonishing how many noted inns in London and the suburbs have vanished during the last twenty or thirty years. Let us glance at a few of the great Southwark inns. The old tabard, from which Chaucer's pilgrims started on their memorable journey, was destroyed by a great fire in 1676, rebuilt in the old fashion and continued until 1875, when it had to make way for a modern, old tabard, and some hot merchant's offices. This and many other inns had galleries running round the yard, or at one end of it, and this yard was a busy place, frequented not only by travelers in coach or saddle, but by poor players and mountebanks, who set up their stage for the entertainment of spectators who hung over the galleries or from their rooms watched the performance. The model of an inn yard was the first germ of theatrical architecture. The White Hart in Southwark retained its galleries on the north and east side of its yard until 1889, though a modern tavern replaced the south and main portion of the building in 1865-6. This was a noted inn, bearing as its sign a badge of Richard I, I. derived from his mother Joan of Count. Jack Cade stayed there while he was trying to capture London. And another, immortal, flits across the stage, Master Sam Weller. Of Pickick Fame, a galleried inn still remains at Southwark, a great coaching and carrier's hostel. The George, it is but a fragment of its former greatness, and the present building was erected soon after the fire in 1676, and still retains its picturesqueness. The glory has passed aid from most of these London inns. Formerly their yards resounded with the strains of the merry post horn, and carriers' carts were as plentiful as omnibuses now are, in the fine yard of the Saracen's Head. Gate, you can picture the busy scene, though the building has ceased to be an in, and if you wished to travel to Norwich there you would have found your coach ready for you. The old Bell Savage, which derives its name from one savage who kept the Bell on the hoop, and not from any beautiful girl, La Bell Savage, was a great coaching center, and so were the Swan with two necks, Glad Lane, the spread eagle, and cross Keys, in Grace Church Street, the White Horse, Fetter Lane, and the Angel. Behind St. Clement's, as we do not propose to linger long in London, and prefer the country towns and villages where relics of old English life survive, we will hie to one of these noted hostelries, book our seats on a phantom coach, and haste away from the great city which has dealt so mercilessly with its ancient buildings. It is the last few years which have wrought the mischief. Many of these old inns lingered on till the 80s. Since then their destruction has been rapid, and the huge caravans arise the Cecil, the Ritz, the Savoy, and the Metropole, have supplanted the old Saracens' heads, the bulls, the bells, and